Besser centers, and here's Pedersen scores. Kai Havertz, who is around Aderson, and Havertz scores for Chelsea. Shed walks it off. Are you ready? I can't hear you. I sir. Scream it. I sir. everyone welcome to episode 56 of the avid discussers podcast i'm your host joshua ray as per usual the avid discussers podcast is part of the area 51 sports network and use the area 51 is also sponsored by bench clearers where they have a lot of retro hockey tank tops and shorts and you can get your own by going to bench clearers website now you can use the code Area 51 sent me to get 10% off your order at benchclearers.com when you check out. And everything will be in the show notes. So, not a lot going on in Canucks land, though there was some news. The Canucks did uh, make changes to their coaching staff. Newell Brown is out. Bradshaw and Kyle Gustafson are in. But the biggest news is that Ian Clark is staying for five more years and that is just fantastic fantastic and Canucks fans especially on Twitter they argue a lot they don't agree with a lot but there's one thing that Canucks fans can agree on Ian Clark is a damn good goaltending coach and probably the best in the world and he is staying for another five years which is the same length as Thatcher Demko's contract which is absolutely just great the best news you can hear and Clark it was said that um like Kevin Woodley was saying that oh he set a personal deadline he might not come back and all that and Clark he even um um wasn't sure he'd be back and he wanted to come back and thankfully the two sides came to a deal, and uh, here we are. Clark is back. Yeah, he, he is a Vancouver guy. He was born here in Vancouver, and he has family here. And he said on Scarlet and Price that he always want we always wanted to be in Vancouver, and we're certainly excited to be here. And he said. I'm from Vancouver, I have family, I built these relationships not only with the goalies but with a strong relationship with Benning and Wisebra as well as Travis Green and the rest of the, the crew. It's not easy to pick up the whole family, move your children to a new school, a new city, and in a new environment. Yeah, see that's the thing with like people in working in hockey or any other sport, whether they're players or staff. Like how hard it must be for them to move their entire family to a new house, move the kids to a new school where they would like, like, you know, when you're a kid, I, I've, I've experienced this too. Like, um, 
you have friends at this old school, and then you're moving to another school, and you're sad that uh, you're that you may never see them again. That has happened to me before, and I'm sure it's probably happened to some of you. And uh, just moving to a new city, a new environment, perhaps a new country. Like Clark was in Columbus for a while, then he came back. So, um, yeah, whether you're a coach or a player, like that has got to be tough. Especially if you're one of those journeyman NHL players that move city to city every year. That has got to be tough. But Clark is a um, just a fantastic goalie coach. And um, now he um, is going to be apparently the director of goaltending as well as the goalie coach well not his role is not changing but he will like be scouting when it comes to goaltenders uh, when it comes to the draft and all that and it is a just fantastic and Thatcher Demko remember he pleaded um with the, the Canucks to bring Clark back and if your player player is pleading with the organization to bring the goalie coach back he must be pretty good, right? And they must love working together. And um, unfortunately, um, we only have like one behind-the-scenes video of Clark and Co- Clark coaching Demko and Holpe. It's on YouTube, on the Canucks YouTube. Just search Ian Clark, and I'm pretty sure it'll be the first thing. Like Ian Clark Canucks, um, because that's a common name. Uh, but mainly due to the not much practice time uh, over the past season, but... Yeah, not much to say about that. Clark, Clark is back, and it's just great news. Like, look what he did with Markstrom, and look what he's doing with Demko. So, this is this is great. And then Brad Shaw, he um, apparently is a very good coach when it comes to defensemen. Like, he was an assistant with Columbus the last few years. He helped um, mentor Seth Jones and Zach Kerensky. Before that, he was an assistant in St. Louis. Alex, he developed Alex Petrangelo. I wouldn't say developed, but he mentored Alex Petrangelo into becoming the star he is. And uh, Shaw has got got a great resume. And apparently, instead of just defense, he um, is also going to be like he's basically going to be Green's right hand guy. And uh, he's going to help out with like the penalty kill, which has been also been a been a struggle at times for the Canucks. And um, he said on 650 on the People Show, he said he wants to help out with five on five power play, basically anything that doesn't involve goaltending, because that's Ian Clark's job. And as I mentioned, that he has mentored Jones, Orensky, and Petrangelo. We got Quinn Hughes, and Hughes. Obviously wasn't very good in his own end last season. One of the worst, actually, according to advanced analytics. And the eye test shows he was, wasn't good at all. So, um, Shaw is, could be the guy to help Hughes translate, like, put the package together. He's got the great offensive skills. We all know that. But he's a defenseman, and defensemen have to defend. Gee, surprise, right? So... Uh, Shaw can hopefully mentor Quinn um, probably next season. And then there's Kyle Gustafson. Don't know much about him, but um, 
Jeff Patterson, on today's guest, we'll get more into him later, but apparently he's been studying the NHL for a while, and this is his first NHL gig because he's been with the Portland Winterhawks of the WHL for the last 18 years as assistant GM and assistant coach. So there was some connection with Green there because Green also coached with the Portland Winterhawks some years ago. I forgot when. And back to Shaw for a minute. Um... When Shaw was in Columbus, uh, the PK was 12th from 2016 to 2021. And when he was in St. Louis, it was 1st from 2006 to 2015. So uh, that's, a, that's a big win here. And then Newell Brown, I mean, big part of the 2011 team. Um, more, more on that later, obviously, because um, you know what day it is. Nothing special happened, right? But anyway... Newell Brown, um, he um, perfect like he changed the power play for the Canucks in 2011, and he like the drop pass became revolutionary. Like a lot of teams use it, I mean, but I over the years the Canucks have overused it, and they're not using it well. It works, but you got to make it work. Like you can't just drop the puck and and um, just leave it there. Like you got to have a guy. Like, take the puck up the ice. And dumping it in is something I want to see the Canucks more. Like, dump and chase. Um, because uh, and it really it really works if you put it the right way. Just like the drop pass. And when Newell Brown is out, like, he'll probably find work somewhere. I mean, um, he was it before he came back to Vancouver, he was the Arizona Coyotes power play coach. And hopefully... He'll get back on his feet. So really, not a lot of news involving the Vancouver Canucks. Other than that, Lucas Yasik went to sign in Finland. Don't know much about him, but he was pretty good in Utica. But the main thing, Ian Clark coming back, just perfect. Just perfect. There's also not just Demko and Holpe. There's uh, Michael DiPietro in the system and Arthur Seelobs. Could he influence the Canucks to take a goalie and like not in the first round I don't want him to do that maybe like in the later rounds so um well also the Canucks pending UFAs um the big ones are Edler Hamanek and Sutter I mean Alex Edler we've all know what he's done for this organization one of the best defensemen the Canucks ever had Though not Norris caliber, no defenseman has ever been that close. Though Quinn Hughes could potentially be that guy. Um, honestly, I think it's best to move on from Edler. Though he hasn't looked as bad as many have thought last season. But he's going to be 35. And the game is changing. He's not as good as he used to be. He's not a 40-point guy anymore. So it'll be best to let him go. Brandon Sutter is an interesting one because... Yeah, he can score goals, but he's not a playmaking guy. And you know he's quote-unquote where the offense goes to die. He's not an offensive guy either. Defensively, he's more sound for, great for that role and the penalty kill. But the only way I'd like to bring him back is like on a one-year deal. That's it. Other than that, he's gone. Travis Hamannick is probably the guy I'd want to bring back the most because he seems like a good mentor for Hughes. Um, didn't look too bad in his first season, especially down the later stretch. He looked a lot better, but, um, just a one-year deal, similar to what he had the last season, 
because for obvious for family reasons he wants to stay in Western Canada. So hopefully, um, Canucks can come out to a deal, and he hasn't been too bad. I I don't mind Travis Hamanick, and even if he does if he if he sucks next year, it's just a one year deal anyway, right? Then there's like VC Boyd and Howerluck of the bottom six. Uh, Jimmy VC is very disappointing. I expected him to be better. He scored five goals with the Leafs, including one against the Canucks, I believe. And same with Travis Boyd. Uh, Analytics darling by in Toronto, but hasn't really done much. Same with VC, like nothing. He's had like one assist or something like that doesn't really do much. He just skates there. Tyler Gravak is going to be a UFA. I mean, he really sh uh, raised some eyebrows on the final stretch, but um, that um, people are saying, oh, he could be the Canucks fourth line center instead of Beagle. I mean, he has shown some capabilities, but could he be like that solid fourth line center? I don't know, but can provide some scoring. I like to have him back. And it'd be a good option for Abbotsford. And it looks like Beagle's injury, I think he'll be looks like he'll be back next year. From what I've heard, it's not career ending. So that's that. Sven Berchi, um, poor him, like he'd be a much better player, like a twenty goal, forty point guy if it weren't for all those concussions. So um uh, yeah. It's gonna. Um, it's it was probably is tough for him. I mean, the way the Canucks treated him and with all those injuries, just an unlucky player. I mean, I I've always liked him. Liked him since his draft year. Can score some goals, play a two hundred foot game, but he'll probably be better off somewhere else. And next year, the Pacific Division. This has come up on Twitter a few times. Can they actually make the playoffs because the Pacific is wide open? Oh, yeah, I know, I know. It's it's early. I get it. It is early. But think about it. Um, Vegas, they're probably like the clear... They are the clear-cut favorite to win the Pacific next year. Calgary, I mean, they've got a bunch of issues. Like, they probably need a shake-up after the season they had. It was very disappointing. Edmonton, we all know about McDavid and Dreisaitl, and it's just now their ability to get get it done in the playoffs. Arizona's a middle-of-the-pack team that really isn't going anywhere unless there are some like major shakeups. Uh, Seattle, to be determined. I, I, they're going to be good, but I don't think they'll be like as good as Vegas in their first season. The California teams. Um, LA is probably the one that is the, is the best out of them because LA has a very good prospect pool. Quinton Byfield is going to be a very solid NHL player. Uh, let me take a look at their their um, their depth chart. I mean, Gabe Villardi is a um, looks like to be a good second line center. Cal Peterson, I'm not sure about him, but it looks like the successor to Quick. Uh, obviously, Drew Doughty isn't very good anymore. Oh, there's Alex Turcott who uh, has potential. Yeah, so LA, like Arthur Kaliev, 
Um, Elias Anderson, who they got within the trade. I mean, he could probably get back on his feet. So, and don't forget Tyler Madden, the guy who was traded for Tyler Toffoli. A lot of um, intriguing prospects. Marcus Phillips, Matt Villata. I think he's the goalie to maybe to succeed quick. Tell me I'm wrong. Sean Dursey. So, they've got a lot of, um, they're in good hands in the future. Then there's the Ducks. All they have is like Trevor Zagris. I mean, he's like their future. Other than that, not much. Zagris is very good though, and I wanted the Canucks to draft him, but Anaheim took him a pick earlier. And then there's the San Jose Sharks. Um, loaded contracts, like the Burns and Vlasic ones and the Carlson. Um, don't really have any intriguing prospects in their pipeline. So, um, they are going to be in the cellar for a while. And I think they're going to be in the, like, at the bottom of the division. So, really, um, this is before the offseason, like, officially begins. But as of now... Pacific Division is wide open, and the Canucks could finish anywhere between, like, 2nd and 4th. So, I have, so right now it could be, like, Vegas, and then Edmonton probably finishes 1-2. Then other than that, it's wide open. I mean, the Canucks can, um, I mean, over the last year, like, it was a, just a poor season, and when fully healthy, they're better than the record shows. But, um, it's still early, I know. But if the Canucks do find a way to add some players in the offseason, they could make the playoffs next year, especially with the Pacific Division. It all depends on what Calgary does, what Edmonton does, what Arizona does, what the California teams do. I mean, I feel like they could actually do it. They have a chance. It's not like a big chance, but it could be like 50-50. I know. it, And, yeah, I do think it is possible. I mean, the Canucks, um, the young core, other than the McDavid, Dreisaitl, um, paired duo, then the Lindholm, Goudreau, Monaghan, Kachuk core, the Canucks have a pretty good young core, Pedersen, Besser, Demko, Hughes, and Horvat as well, and they're only going to get better, but, of course, you can go all day about the cap crunch, but... I do think the Canucks have a chance to make the playoffs next year. And if they don't, I guess Jim Benning is gone. Like, if they return him again, then I don't know. So and it, so today is the um, anniversary. Today's the 15th of Game 7. I don't really want to go into it too much. But, oh man. It's just... Uh, every time June 15 comes up, I think of it. Oh this day it's been 10 years i honestly can't believe it today is the 10 year anniversary like before the hype before game seven i really thought the Canucks were gonna do it everyone did anyone who was a Canucks fan did and um i don't know what can i say hashtag brad marchand ruined my childhood same with patrice bergeron patrice bergeron and brad marchand ruined my childhood pretty much and in some alternate universe Canucks, Henrik Sedin lifted the cup. And Ryan Kessler, maybe he won the Smythe. He was like a favorite prior to the final because he was just so good in the second and third rounds. 
man, like, if it weren't for the injuries, like, I'm pretty sure they would have won it. Like, Dan Hamuse, big part of the defense. Kessler playing with a torn groin and a late torn labrum. Erhoff injured shoulder using painkillers. Edler with two broken fingers and so on. It still hurts. It really does. But the NHL playoffs have gotten underway. Uh, last night, the Vegas Golden Knights, they defeated the Montreal Canadiens 4-1. I mean, Flurry was really good. Price was really good. Didn't see it all. But uh, Habs defense wasn't very good as well. And just Vegas was all over them. And, I mean, Vegas is the better team. But you really can't count Montreal out, especially after game one. Like, three defensemen scored for Vegas. Martinez, I believe. Holden. Nick Holden, these nuts. Ha, got him. And Shea Theodore. Like, Theodore had two points. Yeah, he did. Then, um, for that, it was the Islanders' lightning. Islanders, I mean, yes, they're a boring team. But when they score goals, they're exciting. Like, the, the way they play the Barry Trot system, like, I, it intrigues me. Like, like, when they're up, they just completely shut it down. I'm, reminds me of Thomas Tuchel. Even, yeah, different sport. I know. But Trotz is very, it's kind of like the hockey, like hockey's Thomas Tuchel. Like, they don't score a lot of goals, but when they have the lead, they really shut it down. Sort of like that. We'll get to football later. And uh, the Lightning, I mean, better on paper, but this series is probably going to go 6 or 7. And if the Lightning find a way to solve Varlamov and the Barry Trot system, um, they could make it a series. I mean, they got the star power. Why couldn't they? So game five go game two. I mean, goes tonight at five for the Lightning Islanders. And by the way, the Lightning atmosphere. I mean, it's kind of dead. Maybe it's because I'm I like the Islanders atmosphere better. Like, but it's kind of dead. Probably has the worst atmosphere. Out of all the four teams. Though Montreal is a smaller crowd. I know. That's that's debat- debatable. But the Islanders fans at Nassau just love it. I love it. New York Saints. And the Habs School Knights goes tomorrow at 6. Like I can't. It just feels weird to see a Canadian team play an American team. Maybe because I got used to the North Division. It just feels weird. But at least it's some sign of return to normalcy. Okay, um, the Blue Jays, like, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., like, what a player, like, he, like, those home runs, like, placata, whatever, or whatever the hashtag was, like, first in, like, home runs, um, let me just look up his stats here, like, like, first in almost every statistical category, like, geez, this guy has to be, like, MVP, and he's only, like, what, 21, 22? Like, really good. Uh, and the 79 hits. Um, 22 home runs. I'm like, that man can really hit. If you look at his advanced stats, too. And the Blue Jays, I mean, slaughtered the Red Sox the other day. Like, just, I love it. What, like, a great young team. Great team of hitters. Though so George Springer, um, when he was signed, I thought he'd play baseball, but... He's been injured, and if if they get him healthy, um, the bats could even be 
be better. But the only problem is pitching. And especially the bullpen. Like the bullpen, like they tend to blow leads. Like Tyler Chatwin. Uh, I've mentioned him before. Like he can't hit the strike zone. So uh, Ryu, like he's a great starting pitcher. Though he has his struggles. Robbie Ray is pretty good. Steven Matz is pretty good. Like the starting pitching is there. Maybe it can be a bit a bit better. Um, but a lot of, uh, like the bullpen, it's weak. It really is weak. And, no, no, the Blue Jays, I wouldn't say they're a World Series contender until they, like, fix the bullpen. And, like, when they play the Rays, who also have a good ro starting rotation, they just whiffle. They, not whiffle, um, will, um, like, fizz out. That's the word I'm looking for. If they could find a way to like go hit against really good pitchers and fix the bullpen, that is a contending team. And let's see what where they go from here. So Euro 2020 slash 2021, it's underway. First game, Italy beat uh, Turkey. That um, great performance all around by Italy. The, the ball, the car, the little remote control car had more offense possession than Turkey. Um, Belgium, Romelu Lukaku, still pretty good. Like that goal, um, from the Czech Republic, uh, against the, um, against Scotland, uh, Schicks, I think it was the first goal, like that was just a goal from halfway, just amazing. Um, today, uh, France beat Germany in Munich. Like, France's midfield and defense all around, they really handed it to Germany. Though their only goal was an own goal off of Mats Hummels. That Spain-Sweden goal, that, um, that was boring. I'm glad I stopped watching after the first half. But the biggest story is Christian Eriksen. If you haven't seen, um, the Danish star, he collapsed just before halftime against Finland. And uh, it's because he had a cardiac arrest. And thankfully he's okay. He's talking. He's stable. And he posted a, an Instagram post saying he feels fine. And he's cheering for Denmark. But um, I don't know. I'm no like medical expert. But I read somewhere that um, a cardiologist said that he might unlikely ever play football again. And I don't understand, like, how a healthy 29-year-old um, athlete, he has a cardiac arrest. I really don't understand it. Again, I'm no medical expert. And he really, um, that was really scary to watch. Like, I, I, I didn't see it live, but seeing it from the video, that was so scary. And the way his teammates rallied around him, their captain, um... Made sure Arison didn't swallow his tongue. Um, did the chest compressions. And just props to the medical staff. Like everybody. Like apparently he was dead for like a minute. That was scary stuff. Like really scary. Like I mean we love football or any sport, but this is this is just this is a regular human being. You gotta remember, athletes are human beings. And Erickson, he's a father. He's a husband, I believe. And he 
He's a son too. He's someone's friend, someone's uncle, cousin. And he um, almost died on the pitch. And props to Anthony Taylor for literally stopping the match. The second, like, it was like a second after Arison collapsed. Anthony Taylor might be an awful ref, but as a human being, just, he's great. Well done. And I can't believe um, they they continued. Um, apparently, um, the players and wanted to continue. And, um, but apparently the manager and team doctor regret it. It's, um, mainly because from what I've heard, uh, Peter Schmeichel, the father of Casper Schmeichel, Denmark's goalie, um, he says that UEFA threatened a 3 nothing loss if the match was suspended. UEFA, what the hell? This guy almost died on the pitch. Or he pretty much was dead. And... Um, I can't, um, believe it. UEFA really sucks. So, just, well wishes to Christian Eriksen. I'm glad he's recovering. And, it's just, um, just really, some, really, it's more than a game. It's just a game at the end of the day. And this is someone's life. And, I'm glad he's okay, really. That was so scary. And I don't know whether it's um, you can say all the theories you want, and people say, "Oh, he didn't get he, the vaccine caused it." Like, shut up! Apparently, he didn't even get the COVID vaccine yet, and the vaccine I'm pretty sure has nothing to do with a cardiac arrest. Again, I'm no medical expert, so uh, just really scary stuff. You never want to see this in any sport, not just football, and. I'm glad he's alright. And just nothing but well wishes to him. And I just love how the football community came together. And how the fans of both Denmark and Finland were chanting Christian Eriksen. Yeah, just um, scary stuff. And I'm really glad he's okay. Okay, let's before we move on to Jeff Patterson. I want to talk about something like... Let's talk about... I'm going to talk about an anime. Like if you don't want me to talk about anime, just skip to the interview. And um, the anime I'm talking about is Your Lie in April. And judging by the cover, I saw it on Netflix. It was recommended to me because I was looking for a new anime to watch. Judging by the title, the visuals, and the opening theme, like the the intro, I thought it'd be a happy anime. Like, oh, it's a and um, spoiler warning for those who haven't seen Your Lie in April. It's like a seven six year old anime. I didn't even know it existed until this year. But spoiler warning for those who haven't seen it or want to see it. Um, yeah, spoiler warning right now. So, skip forward. Still here? Alright. Um, I thought it was a happy anime. Because the, what I would, the info on Netflix is a 14-year-old kid. I thought he was like 18 or 17. Uh, Kosei Arima, he is like a piano prodigy. Like a really good pianist, wins every competition, but his mom dies of some kind of disease that's never specified. And then he loses his motivation to play the piano, and he can't hear the notes anymore. And after he had like a mental breakdown on stage. Two years have passed, doesn't play the piano anymore, he's kind of depressed. Until he meets this girl, playing the melodica 
with kids on a dome. Her name her name was Kari Miyazano. And she is very happy, very happy-go-lucky, free-spirited, very positive. She's a violinist, a very good one. And she basically motivates him to play the piano again. She basically drags him, kicking and screaming, both figuratively and literally, to play a guitar, uh, not guitar, violin, piano competition together. And, um, like, he falls in love with her, obviously. But apparently the reason why she was so happy and outgoing was because she had some kind of terminal disease. That's, again, never specified. So, as you can see throughout the series, her hair and her skin gets paler and paler. Like, I knew, I had a feeling something was up. Like, I knew she was going to die right from episode 4 or 5. Whatever one that she collapsed. And there was also some hints, like, she was taking a lot of pills. She said, well, to herself that she was ne wasn't going to be around all the time. And spends, like, the last half of the anime in the hospital. And there's that one point scene where um, her legs just stop working. Yet despite this, she's all positive and happy because she doesn't have much time left. And she uh, told a single lie saying that she liked Kosei's best friend, Watari. And at the, at the, in order to meet him. Because apparently she first met him when she... He, when they were five, where he played his first piano recital, went to the same school, but was too shy to ask to be friends with him. And really, she did love him, and he loved her back. But the saddest part, she dies in the end during a surgery that could have potentially saved her, but it was risky. And it was during Kosei's piano competition, and like that, that final scene where... He sees her in his mind, and then she disappears right after. Just heartbreaking. It, like, this is like, not, like, anime or not, like, media. This is like the saddest, one of the saddest things I have ever watched. Like, I couldn't stop crying after I watched it. It's like 22 episodes. I couldn't stop crying after. Like, I had to go to sleep because I was tired, but I couldn't stop crying. Like, this anime broke me. I, I can't even look at my damn piano without thinking of this anime. Without feeling kind of emotional. Like this went from a star is born. To. Um, fall on our stars. Like really quickly. Like I don't know. This could be sadder than a fall on our stars. I haven't seen the, the movie. But I read the book. And. Like. At the end. Um, Kaori writes. Um, Kosei a letter. In case she died. Which of course she did. And she revealed that it was all the lie. She didn't really like Watari. She actually liked Kosei. And she said, wrote that she she loved Kosei. And the saddest part is Kosei never got to tell her. Like that, that is just sad. It is sad as hell. Like I can't believe it. Like I thought it would be a happy anime. But I was fooled by the, by the opening, by the title by the visuals, like, it just fools, um, fools you, like, I couldn't believe it, 
like the last few lines like i'm sorry i ate i never ate those cantalays i beat you up so much i was a brat to you i'm sorry for everything thank you and the final line of the anime is springtime is almost here the season we met a spring without you is coming like that just broke me and um thankfully some i'm pretty sure people have written like an alternate opening somewhere on the internet the uh, no, an alternate ending where they both live happily ever after though if, now that you think about it now that i think about it it would have looked very cliche and maybe uh, like really i was like why did you have to die after i watched it like come on and he never got to tell her that he loved her like damn at least i believe like in fault on our stars and all these other movies and films they were both in love with each other until one of them dies but this time he never got to tell her and she never got to tell her while um she was alive like the letter doesn't really count oh lord this was so sad I, I can't believe it i haven't watched another anime since i watched it over the weekend <sighs> like why did why did kauri have to die but i guess that's what makes the anime great like it's got great music great visuals incredible voice acting especially from the english dub i only watched the english dub anyway but the japanese scenes are on youtube and they aren't they are pretty good as well and it inspired and i kind of want to play the piano again i haven't played in a long time after watching that anime might learn how to play the opening theme but it's just, it's just i can't even listen to the theme without feeling emotional knowing what happens in the end so your lie in april the anime is called and it's on netflix and uh i don't i don't recommend watching it but if you want to cry at the end uh yeah go ahead bring a bunch of tissues like i don't know like i cried from this more from this anime more than i cried with endgame that's saying something i mean schindler's list, list i cried pretty much like any of those holocaust movies um um the ending of the office i kind of shed a few tears but it wasn't like bawling like i was bawling at the end of your lie in april like this was sad as hell yeah, I I don't think I'm gonna rewatch this. I can't even look at the look at the care look at the characters without feeling kind of emotional. Like this broke me. Like I'm broken. This might be this this broke me almost the same way as Game Seven ten years ago. Yeah, that's how sad it is. And yeah, I'm not gonna read the manga or rewatch it. I I, I can't. Or even there's even a live action movie in Japanese. I can't do it. But anyway, enough about anime and the sad stuff let's talk to, to jeff, jeff patterson coming up next want to start your own podcast about sports or whatever great unsure how to get started no problem that's what buzzsprout is for the avid discussers podcast uses buzzsprout it's quick and easy and myself and thousands of other podcasters around the world use buzzsprout you'll get an awesome looking website plus your show will be out on spotify apple google amazon and all other platforms you also get ways to promote the show, detailed analytics and stats, and a whole lot more. But that's not all. If you sign up with a paid plan for Buzzsprout, you'll get a $20 Amazon gift card. And it would also help support this show. It's easy. Just follow the link in the show notes. Buzzsprout makes podcasting fun 
and easy. Start your own today. All right, everyone, joining us this week on the Avid Discussers podcast is Jeff Patterson of the VanCast. He also is a contributor to Donnie and Dolly and Sakaris and Price. Jeff, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. And let's start off with how did you um, how, like, map out the, your career so far? Like, how did you get to this, this point? <laughs> well, jump in the Wayback Machine with me because uh, it's been quite a ride and quite a journey. But this is something that I've always wanted to do. And if you asked my parents when like eight-year-old Jeff Patterson was growing up, like we grew up in a household where the radio was on all the time. It was locked on to CKNW, which was the big station in town. And I suppose some could argue, they probably would argue that they they still are. Um, but, you know, this is way before the internet. Um, and just grew up in a household with the radio on all the time. And, and I sort of developed this fascination for these voices that were in this box and talking and ultimately guys were talking about sports and the Canucks and, um, you know, really from about the time I was eight, nine, 10, I, I had it in the back of my mind that this is something I wanted to do. So everything I did sort of through my high school years was with a design on giving this the best shot I had and seeing if I could make a go of it. So you know, I started to sort of research, uh, you know, broadcast schools and those types of things and tried to figure out where uh, other people who were in the business, you know, their backgrounds and, and what they had done. I've always been fascinated by people and their stories. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't just listen to these people on the radio, but I like I kind of wanted to know more about them and who they were and, and how they got there. And again, you know, today it would be easy because you just Google them, but uh, it wasn't that easy. So, um you know, I, I can't really remember how much info I had on some of these people, but the sports guys particularly, I mean, I played every sport growing up, uh, had a couple older brothers and, you know, they played every sport and I wanted to do what they were doing. So sports was a massive part of my upbringing and sort of as I got through my formative years and trying to figure out, well, hey, why don't I mix my passion for sports with a career option? And this is kind of where it led and, and you know, it was always radio. I never really had the design on doing television. I loved the idea of uh, really being able to dig into topics and issues. And, you know, TV didn't really get that opportunity. But boy, on the radio with a talk show or game coverage and those types of things, like you, you could devote a ton of time to those types of topics. And that's really what kind of hooked me. And listening to Connect Games on the radio as a kid. Uh, grew up in North Vancouver and and so born and raised in Metro Van and and this is home and and um, you know Jim Robson and Tom Larshide were the guys on the radio calling Canuck games and I just totally developed this fascination with them and everything they did and the Canucks and I used to you know chart stats and, and you know I would do my own play-by-play on TV like lots of guys tell those same sorts of stories and ultimately for me it was you know, I wanted to go to university to get a degree, but I, I really wanted to go to BCIT to broadcast school. And so uh, I did both. I went to UBC for four years. And while I was there, I got completely immersed in the campus radio station 
and did play-by-play of hockey and basketball and football and hosted a talk show and got to go to Canuck games with a press pass through CITR, the radio station on campus. And, you know, that was really the springboard for me. Nothing I did at UBC sort of dissuaded me from, you know, pushing for what I wanted to do for a living. And so by the time I got to BCIT, I had on-air experience. I had covered the Canucks. I, you know, was way ahead of my classmates. And, um, and so I did the two-year broadcasting program at, at BCIT. And that led to my first job in Kamloops. And I was really lucky because I had classmates that wound up in Smithers and Dawson Creek and, you know, some of those places way up north. And with all due respect to those cities, uh, I kind of got to bypass, you know, the really small town start. And I was prepared to, uh, but I was lucky. I got hired in Kamloops right out of broadcast school. And, uh, you know, from there, sort of the rest is history because uh, I had some really good opportunities in Kamloops and lived and worked there for uh, parts of seven years before I made it back to Vancouver and have been covering the Canucks in one form or other for more than 20 years now. And obviously today is the 10 year anniversary of game seven. And I just want to ask you, what are some of your memories covering um, the Canucks loss to the Boston Bruins that night? Yeah, I've spent a lot of time here in the last couple of days sort of reflecting, uh, you know, big round numbers are always good for nostalgia. And so 10 years, uh, you know, in many ways, it's gone by quickly. And others, when you think of the on-ice product for the Canucks, it's been such a dark decade uh, with a lack of success that, you know, and sometimes it feels like it's been twice that long. But uh, for me, you know, I was I wasn't traveling back then, but I was covering the Canucks. And so you know, went to every home game during the playoffs, was hosting post-game shows and extended post-game shows. We did a show called Playoff Game Night that went on after the post-game show, and we did that every night, uh, the 25 games that they played in that spring of 2011. And uh, that was a blast to, you know, host a a talk show and a post-game show late into the night, early into the morning. We tried to get it to 2 a.m., uh, as long as there were callers on the phone board and, and the deeper they went in the playoffs, there were always callers there. So it was kind of neat to talk to a different audience of, you know, night owls and shift workers and uh, insomniacs and people that were just so into the Canucks through that run. Um, and so that's one of my big memories was hosting playoff game night. Uh, I, I remember too, that, you know, the deeper they get in the playoffs, the league schedules the games for five o'clock Pacific time for an eight o'clock start out East. And so it was just a glorious month of June. If you look back and you see the video of all the people, the crowds, the thousands of people that were out on the street, what always strikes me is there's not a cloud in the sky. And these were five o'clock starts. So I would go to the game, you know, to make sure that I was there with uh, any issues of getting downtown and traffic. And, you know, I would I'd get to the rink at like two o'clock in the afternoon and just make sure that I was in and my workspace and settled and all that kind of stuff well in advance, except game seven itself. I wanted to soak some of it in. I I wanted to believe in my heart that the Canucks were going to win game seven of the Stanley cup. And I was going to see them hoist the cup at home. Uh, And so I got downtown really early that day. And I remember uh, the Seattle radio station, KJR, uh, they had come up and were doing a broadcast from the shark club that afternoon. And they asked me if I would go on. And so I went into Rogers arena, I set up and then I went across the street and went to the shark club and the atmosphere and the energy in a sports bar in the mid afternoon hours leading up to a five o'clock start. Like you can imagine the walls were shaking like that place, just the, the energy. I think some of it was nervous energy, 
but it was electric. And I just remember going in and doing a, a sort of 10 or 15 minute hit with them setting up the game. Uh, I have no idea really what we talked about, but my memory is so clear on just, you know, everybody in Canuck colors inside the sports bar, they were there and they were ready to celebrate and party. And ultimately that didn't happen for them, but um, yeah, I mean, it just, I remember being in the Canucks locker room after game seven and you know, there were no players to be found originally because they were all in the back in complete disbelief. Their dreams had been crushed. They had left everything on the ice and came up a game short. And so ultimately, you know, it took a while before the, the media relations staff was able to, to get some players to come out. And, and they did. The Twins, as they always did, eventually appeared and, and talked about the game. And uh, Roberto Luongo was crushed, obviously, uh, you know, so, so much a central theme of that series and that season um, you know, for whatever reason, I remember Chris Higgins. I, I don't really remember. Like, I know I was in there and I talked to these other players, but I can remember, I can see Chris Higgins in my mind's eye um, and just trying to verbalize what losing in a game seven of the Stanley Cup meant to him. And he really was at a loss for words. And he was just struggling to try to come up with anything to sort of explain, you know, the thoughts that were in his head. And so, you know, those are some of the things that I remember it was just, you know, these sunny days. It was incredible. The crowds downtown hockey every other day for two extra months after the regular season, 25 games, working mornings, working late at night. Like it was a glorious time to be on the beat. And it just, you know, the one thing that would have made it that much better uh, would have been to see the home team win a Stanley cup, because even though the fandom in me, I, I mean, I was a fan as a kid growing up, it's sort of been squeezed out of me in the job that I've had for, for this many years, but I want to see the city of Vancouver win a Stanley cup. I want the Canucks to win a cup for the people that have been there uh, for so many years. And, and I, I get it. I trust me, I get it. And so I hope it happens, but you know, it doesn't seem like it's uh, imminent certainly for the Canucks where they are in this current incarnation, but uh, man, uh, you know, great memories, obviously uh, just would have been that much more special had they been able to win one more game. Yeah, it totally would have been. And for many, for all of us, actually, it still hurts 10 years, 10 years later. And uh, you've worked for TSN 1040 for a long time. And uh, what was your initial reaction? Feel free to answer this if you can. Um, when they, when Bell pulled the plug on 1040 last February. Yeah, I was complete and utter shock. Nobody saw it coming. We kind of got ambushed, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, the station, in my mind, had never sounded better. We had just come out of essentially the first year of pandemic. It was 11 months uh, of, you know, no sports. And guys had never worked harder. When you think about doing shows five days a week with nothing going on, and yet all the hosts had been forced to adapt and, you know, be creative and come up with ways to keep the conversation going. And the reward was that we got to January where hockey was starting up and the Super Bowl had happened. And, and we kind of thought like, all right, we made it like we're, we're out of the woods and here we are. And with no warning whatsoever, I got an email that morning, February 9th. I'm sure I'll remember that for the rest of my life saying that I had to be on a conference call in 20 minutes and we got 20 minutes notice. Uh, and when you get those kind of emails, uh, you have a sense that something drastic is happening. Didn't know exactly what didn't in my sort of wildest dreams, think it was going to be uh, across the board, pulling the plug. I thought maybe they were going to remove some shows or lay some people off, but uh, just crushed, crushed that this product that we had all 
thrown so much into and and I truly believe it it never sounded better and I had been there for parts of 15 years and lots of different hosts and you know different shows and all those types of things I thought we were absolutely cooking with gas and they had other ideas uh, apparently and you know just never had a chance to uh, work with the company to try to come up with solutions their solution was get it off the books as quickly as possible and so to have that many talented people out on the streets all at once uh, was crushing, absolutely devastating. And, um, you know, it, it's hard still these months later to totally grasp it. I get that it was finances and, and I understand that there's a bottom line to it all, but it just, it felt to me that there were ways that, you know, especially coming through a pandemic when a lot of people had given an awful lot to that company uh, to keep the station on the air. Uh, that that's the way it went down. So it's frustrating, but life does move on. You can't dwell on it. And uh, I've had some other, you know, moments in my career uh, that have been, you know, downs, lots of ups. It's been a blast, but, you know, that certainly was one of the career lows without a doubt. And how have you been adapting since uh, 1040 got shut down? I think pretty well. I joke that I've been remarkably busy for an unemployed guy. Um, you know, I, I'm just, I'm so impressed and proud of my colleagues that have taken this blind leap into the digital, digital space. And, and look, I've had lots of experience on podcasts and love doing podcasts. And, you know, I've been fortunate to have two now that, you know, I've been among the market leaders. And, and so, yeah, I had a sense of what was possible, but you know, they were always a side hustle for me when guys were forced to jump right in, um, and especially guys that hadn't dabbled in this digital space to see what was possible from Rob Fay a week after them pulling the plug to, you know, him being on the air with the nation and Donnie and Dolly getting up and, and Sakaris and Price and, uh, you know, to have Halford and Bruff and, and Karen Sermon back. Like so many people landed on their feet so quickly, which tells me that, you know, the market saw the value in, in the work that was being done. And if Bell didn't, that there were other people that wanted these voices heard in this market. And so, you know, I think what February 9th was, was a day of reckoning, really, that, uh, you know, a company that wasn't based in Vancouver decided that they didn't see value in a sports radio station uh, in this market, even though there is, you know, Sportsnet still here. But Bell made the decision it did. And I think a lot of us, that were caught in the crossfire realized that, you know, it was on us to sort of take responsibility for our, our own careers. And that's a scary thought in many ways, but I think a lot of sponsors and businesses out there recognized too, that they wanted these voices heard. And if that was the case, then they had to step up and buck up and become sponsors and invest. And, you know, it, it's been incredible to watch the support that these shows have all gained. And I guess for me, uh, deep down, like, you know, I, I have the podcast with The Athletic, but I don't have a show to call my own necessarily. But the fact that Sakaris and Price wanted me to be a big part of what they were doing moving forward, that Donnie and Dolly uh, wanted me not once, but twice a week, that Halford and Bruff saw a role for me, you know, to contribute to their show. Faye reached out right away with The Nation and, and you know, he wanted a little bit of credibility and somebody that was hands-on covering the Canucks and he thought I would be a good fit. And that was a ton of fun to do post-game. And so that meant the world to me, that my colleagues... Well, they were branching out on their own. They wanted to bring me along for the ride. And so, um, you know, I, I've had to freelance at times in the past. It's scary. 
you know, there isn't a ton of security. As we found out on February 9th, there isn't much security in this business at the best of times. But when you're freelancing and you're not really in control, uh, that can be a little bit daunting, but you got to believe in yourself. You got to bet on yourself at times. And I think this is one of those times. And, and so I think the market is richer for having all of these different voices and these new creations and productions. And it's amazing that in February, we all kind of wondered, you know, where do we go from here? And now I look at uh, what these guys have been able to do and, and the possibilities in the digital space. And it's really enlightening and, 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 you know, heart, for me to see that people have taken control of their own careers. And uh, I just think the market is, is better for it. And despite the circumstances, you managed to um, have the Botford project continue the season. And um, what was the experience like given how, how hard the season has been? Yeah, that was, I'm really glad that we managed to pull that off. And, and I can tell you that, there were not just days, there were a few weeks there where I didn't think it was going to happen. And, you know, I worked pretty hard behind the scenes with the Canucks, uh, with Thomas Drantz. Uh, this means a lot to me. I, you know, Jason was obviously a colleague and a, and a really good friend. And we started something meaningful as a, you know, a living legacy to, you know, you could put a picture of him on the wall in the press box or a plaque on his seat. But, you know, I, I think the best tribute is, to give the next the next wave of young journalists an opportunity in his name and to sit in his seat and follow in his footsteps. And I know it meant a lot to his wife, Kat. And, you know, this was such a screwy year with COVID. And, you know, we were trying to figure out how to make it happen. And the Canucks, they were so thin on support staff behind the scenes. And they were getting run ragged. And I just think that the idea of one more project at times felt like one more project too many for them, quite frankly. And so I, I kept badgering and I thank the Canucks PR department for ultimately coming through. And, and I think we crushed it in the end, we decided to go on one night where, you know, in the first year we were supposed to have 10 and then COVID hit. So we only got nine through the program. Uh, but still again, nine of 10, I think was pretty good under those circumstances. Then with all the protocol changing uh, and access to the building and everything on zoom, like there were just so many hurdles and it would have been easy to say, no, not this year. But I, I was worried if we said not this year, you know, could we get it back next year? Or was that the end? Was it one and done? And I didn't want it to be one and done. And so to get the three candidates in as we did on the same night was actually really cool. You know, not only did they see Connor McDavid go off against the Canucks and get four points that night. Um, you know, so few people got to see Canuck games in person. And, and that was something we delivered to these three finalists. And they got to share the experience together, which, you know, they, they had had interaction on social media, but they'd never met each other in person. And, you know, at the height of the pandemic, nobody was seeing anybody face to face. And so that was a really sort of cool and special uh, element to this year's program was getting these three people in the building at the same time, the shared experience. Uh, you know, it, it was really neat. And, and it's something that we're going to consider moving forward, that there, maybe that is the way to do it you know, one night, but go big and bring the candidates, however many there are uh, together, you know, they forged a friendship and, and again, to be able to sort of share that bond in the name of Jason and the project, like that means a lot to me. So I'm really thankful that, you know, it took some work, but we were able to pull it off in the end. And, you know, hopefully this is a legacy program 
that will go on in perpetuity or certainly for a number of years still uh, as we get things back to normal. Who knows what next year is going to look like at this stage, but I'm positive. I've got my fingers crossed that people will be back in the building, that we'll be back in the press box because they had moved us out of the traditional press box for this season uh, just due to protocols and access and those types of things. And we were able to pull it off. So, uh, you know, when I think back of this Canucks season, lots of twists and turns, lots of storylines. But for me individually, the fact that we got these three aspiring journalists into the building, in the Botchford Project, uh, that's going to be right up there near the top of my list in terms of special moments and special accomplishments for this 2020 hockey season. Got a listener question from Ty Party. He asks, your craziest interview story from your time with the Canucks? Uh, uh, boy, there are a lot. You know, I'll always remember Alex Burroughs riding the stationary bike post game. Uh, when he just launched into that tirade about referee Stefan Auger, if you remember that incident, uh, you know, red in the face, this massive media scrum around him. He's doing it on a stationary bike after a game and just unloading on an NHL referee. Like you just didn't ever hear that kind of thing. So, you know, that was one, certainly. Uh, I remember the first time Pavel Bure came back after the, the Bure trade and he had a broken finger and he didn't play, but it was the first time back in Vancouver and the Panthers brought him out into the hallway to talk to the media. And it was one of the biggest scrums. It wasn't just sports people. It was news people. And the way this, like they, there was no notice. They just brought him down a, a hallway and all of a sudden Pavel appeared and like this feeding frenzy of media, as you can imagine. And it was, it was like a mosh pit basically. And I was trapped in there somewhere, but managed to get a decent position and, and survived. But man, that was, you know, you, you don't think of being in the media as a physical gig, but like <laughs> there were bodies flying and elbows flying. Uh, I remember hosting a pregame show years ago. We used to host a pregame show in, I think it was called the captain's club at, then General Motors place and and I think it's on the second floor and it was for season ticket holders so it was like you know uh, the establishment essentially uh lots of money lots of sort of uh, you know upper crust if you will and we did we had this stage set up and we did the pre and post game show from there and I remember asking the Rangers if Glenn Saylor would come and be our pregame guest and so uh, they said yes, and this, he's the general manager of the Rangers at the time. They bring him down, and we've got again, we've got this stage. We're up on a riser, and and you know, he, I had a seat, and he had a seat. He did the pregame show. It was probably eight or ten minutes. He put on a headset, and he didn't once look at me. It was the weirdest thing. Like he stared off into space. He looked the other way. I've got an NHL GM on a pregame show half an hour before the puck drops. And for whatever reason, like he looked so disinterested and here I am, like I'm young in my career and there's a big deal. I got slats. He didn't look at me for 10 minutes. It was the weirdest thing. So no idea what that was all about. Um, anyways, I mean, he answered every question. Like he was listening clearly, but he just, he was not engaged physically and so it was totally bizarre and, and off-putting and you know here I am sort of nervous already and, and that didn't help my nerves um you know there are a couple others that jumped to mind I remember in a scrum with Joel Quenville when he was the coach of the Blackhawks and anytime the Hawks came through town and and this is sort of in that you know 09 10 11 like the rivalry heyday and 
you know, the Blackhawks travel quite a few media with them and, and the Canucks obviously were heavily covered back in the day. And I always like to get as close as I could to the interview subject, just so I could get my microphone in, try to get the, you know, the flasher, the call sign on the microphone, uh, get it on TV. The bosses always like to see that. And so I always tried to sort of post up against the interview subjects and Joel Quenville came out and there was this massive scrum and as he's talking, and this is visual, you got to kind of follow along here, but think of me holding my microphone with one hand and my recording device with the other and the, the cable between the mic and the recording device, you know, there were probably six or eight feet of cable. So it looped down and back up and Joel Quenville, I'm standing right next to him. And in the middle of this scrum, he puts his hands in his tracksuit pocket. The problem was that like in doing so, as he puts his hands in his tracksuit pocket, he's formed a loop that my cable is now stuck like on the inside of his arm and I can't get out. And, and this scrum breaks down, except that, you know, there's always guys that the last few that want to like small talk with the coach and, and the scrum went on for a while. And like, I didn't want to make a scene, but I could, I was trapped. I was hooked. We were basically linked. And I remember just standing there. I, I turned off my microphone. Like I wasn't recording anymore, but unless I had like yanked on the cable and sort of like pulled his hand out of his pocket, um, I was stuck there. So you know, again, stupid little things that you think of. I, I remember Dan Boyle after San Jose, after the, the BX expansion goal and the Canucks have eliminated the Sharks you know, take me you know, rip the shark Stanley cup hopes from them. And the Canucks won in five in that series. Right. And Dan Boyle in the visitor's room at Rogers arena. So defiant that the sharks were the better team in that series. And again, the Canucks won in five. Like it wasn't like they had just lost this. game seven and Dan Boyle was spitting fire. Like I can totally remember where he was in that room, his stall right inside and, and like on the back wall and the look on his face, the eyes that like he was convinced in his heart of hearts that the Sharks were the better team, even though the Canucks won that series in five. Now the Canucks did a ton of their damage on the power play. And maybe that's what he was getting at that five on five. Maybe they were the better team, whatever. The Canucks crushed them on the power play. Uh, they got the bounce they needed in game five to win it. And, you know, so yeah, I mean, that's one that stuck with me. 10 years after the fact, we talked earlier about uh, game seven and the Bruins, but it's funny that I remember game five against the Sharks and just the look on Dan Boyle's face trying to convince me that the better team had not won that series. It, uh, it was remarkable stuff. Oh, very, very fascinating. And let's move on to some Canucks talk. And there hasn't really been much in terms of news, except the Canucks made some coaching changes, locking up Ian Clark, letting Newell Brown go and bringing in Brad Shaw and Kyle Gustafson, your, what are your thoughts on, on those moves? And uh, what should we expect from Shaw and Gustafson? Yeah, uh, let's start with Gustafson, you know, a bit of an unknown, but I, I'm glad, like, I like to see guys get an opportunity. You know, he's been a longtime coach in Portland in the Western Hockey League, Travis Green coached there. So there's an association and Travis has spoken glowingly about how much this guy studies the NHL, even though he hasn't been working in the NHL. So you know, he's regarded as a, a bright, youngish hockey mind. I think he's in his early 40s. Um, you know, and again, I, 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 there's sort of a sameness in hockey. A lot of the same guys get recycled. And so to bring in some fresh blood with some fresh ideas, 
you know, and the fact that the Canucks are calling him a systems coach, I think he's progressive, you know, it's something a little outside the box for them. And, and they've been accused of not being outside the box at all here in the last, you know, six, eight years. So um, let's see where it goes from there. I don't know what kind of profile he'll have, but uh, you know, hopefully he can uh, bring some, some new ideas to the mix. Cause I think the Canucks can use them. You know, Brad Shaw's at the other end of the spectrum. This guy's a career coach and, and now a career assistant, even though he was briefly a head coach uh, on an interim basis with the Islanders. But everybody in hockey speaks so highly of him and the work that he's done, particularly with young defensemen. When you think of the work that uh, he did in St. Louis with Alex Petrangelo, you look at Columbus with Seth Jones and Zach Wierenski. And, you know, Zach Wierenski was the eighth overall pick in his draft year coming out of Michigan. Well, look at Quinn Hughes, seventh overall pick out of Michigan. And, you know, questions about whether these guys could defend at the NHL level. Everybody knew that they had the offensive talent. So I think there's a real comparable in Wierenski for a guy like Quinn Hughes. So if Bradshaw can come in and help Quinn Hughes on the defensive side, you know, it was evident this year that he took a step back defensively. So, you know, I don't know if the hiring was done solely for Quinn Hughes, because you got Jack Rathbone, you got Ole Levy, um, you know, but there's a stable of young defensemen that I, I think Bradshaw can help out with. You know, he's not going to take over from Nolan Baumgartner handling the defense. He says that he's essentially an associate coach and kind of, you know, is being brought in above the current assistants and really will be Travis Green's right-hand man and another set of eyes. And and so, you know, let's see how that goes, but uh, universally regarded in the hockey world and, you know, a player first and foremost. So he and Travis can relate on that level. And uh, both of them have been at this for a while now, you know, Ian Clark getting Ian Clark resigned, I think was the big news of that day when they announced the coaching staff, because uh, quite frankly, I thought he was gone. Like he had set an internal deadline. They hadn't met it. Uh, the fact that he hadn't signed anywhere else, I guess, always gave me this inkling of hope that, you know, the door hadn't slammed shut. And we know how long Travis Green had to wait to get his extension. So all of these guys were sort of put through the, the grinder. But, you know, ultimately he gets a five-year extension and that's uh, out of the norm for the Canucks to go that far. But I think it reflects that they recognize the value of what he had done with Jacob Markstrom, what he's done with Thatcher Demko, what he'll hopefully be able to do with Mikey DiPietro, Arthur Silov's, you know, and they've given him this title, director of goaltending. So he's going to have a hand in uh, scouting to a degree, or at least input on the draft if uh, the Canucks want to add to their stable of goaltending. And we've seen the struggles that Sergei Bobrovsky has had since he parted companies with Ian Clark. And even Jacob Markstrom in his first year in Calgary wasn't at the same level that he was here the last couple of years. So uh, again, I, I think the Canucks recognized the value. It took a little longer. Uh, there were a few twists and turns and maybe more drama than was required ultimately, but we're in a pandemic and I get that revenues weren't flowing. So uh, in the end, they all had to wait a little longer, but Ian Clark gets himself a five-year extension like that. Uh, that's a solid piece of business for him, but I also think uh, pretty good work on the part of the Vancouver Canucks. And, and just quickly on Newell Brown, uh, I always enjoyed my dealings with Newell. Uh, you know, I hope he lands on his feet. Uh, I think he's a smart hockey guy. But at the same time, they were last place in the Canadian division. And this season got away from them. When you think of where they were coming out of the bubble, you know, if they were going to return the entire coaching staff and management group, like I do think that there had to be a change. And I, I feel bad that it kind of looks like Newell Brown was singled out in some ways. But uh, ultimately, he is the guy that they decided to move on from. Uh, but, you know, in my dealings with him, uh, just found him to be a solid guy straight up. Uh, we had a really good discussion with him on the VanCast and, you know, he was willing to talk about the power play and, and some of the things like, you know, it went from fourth in the league 25th. Like nobody wants that on their watch. 
Uh, yeah, they were without Elias Pedersen for half the season. Uh, but, you know, we had a really good chat about some of the reasons that the power play dropped as badly as it did. And, you know, I think he'll find work. I, I think there's a team out there that uh, will see some value in Newell Brown and want him on their coaching staff. So I look forward to seeing where he lands uh, in this offseason. And other piece of news that's r- relatively minor, like Lucas Yasek, Canucks prospect, has signed in Finland. Your your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't have a lot of thoughts, to be perfectly honest with you. I, I'm starting to wonder if the Canucks were even going to qualify him. Uh, that said, like it's never a great look when a guy that you've drafted and you know you had as one of your prospects. Uh, and he led Utica in scoring. He was tied for the team lead. And like, you know, people don't talk about him necessarily as uh, an NHL, like a legit NHL prospect, but he, he was tied for the team lead in Utica this year in a shortened AHL season. Um, you know, the fact that he decided to go to Finland, whether it was for money or opportunity, uh, you know, I'm still trying to find out if there's more to the story there. You know, I, I don't think people should be crushed, but at the same time, like somebody has got to play in Abbotsford, right? Like, they're going to lose a piece to Seattle. They don't have a ton of prospects. Like when you look at now Colin was injured. Like he would have had more points down in, in Utica this year had he played the full season. Um, but, you know, Yashik was tied for the team lead. And then you had Jonah Gadjevich who had an incredible goal scoring season. And he got his look at the end. Um, and then there was Sven Berchi. But, you know, those were the top three Canuck property guys, Canuck pieces. I you won't call Berchi a prospect, obviously. Uh, and now he's out of their clutches. His contract is up. But let's say, for argument's sake, that Gadjevich gets taken by Seattle in expansion. Well, now all of a sudden, you've got Yashik's gone to Finland. You've got Gadjevich, who's with another organization, and Sven Berchi's gone as UFA. Carson Folk would be the highest scoring Canuck guy under contract that would be coming to Abbotsford. You know, when people say the pipeline is thin, it's thin. And I don't know if people recognize it. And, and so that's where I say like somebody, somebody has got to wear the uniform. Somebody has got to play out in Abbotsford. And I'll be really curious to see, you know, what they do to stockpile that franchise, because, you know, in terms of just like Canuck prospects, like legit Canuck prospects, uh, there aren't that many. And you got to round out a, a roster somehow and you want them to be competitive. And you want to put them in an environment where the young guys are growing and developing. And so that's something to watch here in this off season. They've got to build Abbotsford from the ground up, uh, but they need to also populate a roster. And I'll be really curious to see, you know, who they fill out the roster with because they just don't have enough of their own prospects internally. And with Vasily Pod Colson coming over and he's going to jump right to the NHL. So he's going to bypass the American Hockey League. I mean, that's been the thing that the Canucks have been down so long here that all of their blue chip prospects have bypassed Utica for the most part. And it'll be really interesting to me to see what kind of product they're able to put on the ice in that first year in Abbotsford. And other than Hughes and Patterson's contract, what do you think is the biggest priority for the Canucks this offseason? Well, trying to get better, but that's no easy feat. And I think it's it's been talked about uh, at length in the market that, you know, their hands are tied with the bloated contracts that are still on the books for another year. So you know, Jim Benning can talk about being aggressive and wanting to make the playoffs, but, you know, in February he talked about two years. So, uh, you know, it's hard to truly know what the motivation is. 
And beyond that, you know, how do you go about getting a whole lot better? Because now there are people talking about, well, should they bring Edler back? Should they bring Hamannick back? Should they bring Sutter back? You can't just return the same roster and think that you're going to be better. Like, yeah, you'll get some improvement from within. A healthy Pedersen would be a great place to start. I'm a believer in Quinn Hughes. And I think he'll learn from the struggles of this season and he'll get better. And Brock Besser obviously showed that, you know, he had a bounce back year. Like, I still think that the core is legit and, and worth building around, but you know, it's, it's not just maintaining the status quo. Like you're trying to be better. You were a last place team. You finished behind Ottawa. Um, now Seattle's coming into the mix. And, and so, you know, it's just one more team in the league that's trying to do the same thing you are. And that's vying for the same players you are. So uh, getting better. I mean, that's always, you know, the, the priority in the off season, even for teams that have success, like, you know, Colorado was built to win the Stanley cup and they, they fell way short. Like they would be sitting there saying, you know, they got to find ways to improve, obviously. And so, you know, the Toronto Maple Leafs are trying to figure out like what went wrong. And, you know, everybody's going to be looking for the same value pieces on the open market. And you have to ask yourself, like, what's going to make the Canucks an attractive option to unrestricted free agents in a flat cap world? You know, the Canucks got themselves in trouble by overspending in years gone by. Well, if it just, it becomes a bidding war, you know, the Canucks have to be careful. They, they can't, getting to bidding wars because a they don't have a ton of money but at the same time you know they're, they're trying to get guys to sign here to help improve this hockey club so uh jim benning is going to have to have a little magic in that uh front office of his uh we'll see about buyouts you know we'll see about trade possibilities but uh, i think that this summer it's going to be really difficult for the canucks to to improve a lot you know that whole thing about Seattle expansion and some teams that are going to have protection problems. That's an Avenue. Like that is one way that I, I think the Canucks when Jim Benning said he was going to be aggressive, I, I hope that's kind of one of the areas that he meant, because I do think that there are going to be some legitimate NHL players that will be available from teams that have protection issues and we'll see if the Canucks can pounce. But again, I think you're going to find that there are a lot of teams that want to be able to pounce. And so, you know, who's willing to pay the most and it almost is going to become an auction uh, with some of these teams that are going to have players that are available that they don't want to lose to Seattle for nothing. And we'll see what kind of bargains they can drive. And, and if the Canucks can get in on, on some of that action on the trade front. And you mentioned Adler, Sutter and Hamnick, since they're all UFAs, like out of all three of them, like uh, which do you think um, is likely to come back? Well, if you listen to the coaching staff, I mean, Travis Green just gushes about Alex Edler, uh, even at this stage of, of his career. And, and we know that, you know, he's far from a perfect player, that the speed of the game has has caused him problems and that uh, there's too many penalties on a lot of nights. And yet he still plays big minutes, kills penalties. Uh, you got Hughes and Rathbone that are undersized guys on the left side. Who's going to kill penalties? You know, I, I could see them taking a long, hard look at Alex Edler again. But for me, it comes back to uh to term and money and and you know he was a six million dollar guy this year he's not going to play for free but at the same time he's made it clear that he wants to stay and play in vancouver so uh if you're the canucks i think you have to use that leverage as much as you can to try to drive a bargain uh i'd have you know like in isolation hammock yeah um but all of a sudden, if you've got Hamannick and Edler coming back, then how have you upgraded the defense? Like, there's two guys in their 30s. You've got Myers in his 30s. Schmidt turns 30 in July. Uh, you know, that's a, a that's an old defense by today's NHL. So, you know, I, I'm a little worried that they're just going to keep the status quo. 
And I've said all along, like Sutter as a fourth line center to kill some penalties, I'd be okay with that at like a million bucks. And he said he wants to stay here. But the problem is if you resign these guys, now they're in your uniform and they're in your lineup. And all of a sudden, does Travis Green resort to old habits? And does he, you know, move Brandon Sutter up in the lineup? And does he trust Brandon Sutter to play more minutes than he ought to? And, and you know, don't get fooled by the nine goals that Sutter scored. Three came in the same game against Ottawa. You know, yeah, he scores some goals, but he hasn't been a setup guy at any point in his career, especially at this stage of his career. He has trouble staying healthy. Like, that is a legit knock against him. And I've got all the time in the world for Brandon Sutter. Like I think the world of the guy is one of the really good guys to just sit and chat with and deal with. And I think that there's a ton of leadership there and I could totally see him getting into hockey operations after his career and those types of things. But, you know, as a player at this stage, um, very little offense and, you know, you just, you can't have him playing higher in the lineup than the fourth line. So if you could promise me like an ironclad guarantee that he wouldn't play above the fourth line, and you could get him at a million or a million and a half, I'd have time for Sutter. But again, this management group has to be out there finding younger guys, guys that can step in and help, not just tread water, because treading water isn't going to cut it for a last place team. So uh, I think management's got a ton of work to do here in the offseason. And again, with the cap crunch, I just, I just don't know how much, honestly, they're going to be able to do. I'd be fine with bringing Sutter back only for a year, one million. But like you said, how how is this team going to improve if you keep bringing back the same guys? And uh, this team finished last in the North and it's all about improvement and bringing back the same guys. It'll just um, not mean much, but um, also a bit of news that surfaced last month was the Sedins apparently looking at a role within the organization. Uh, it's been a month now, I believe since mm-hmm. it was first reported. And what do you think, what do you think is taking so long? Uh, my guess is that the Sedins are, you know, really diligent guys that are just making sure that this is what they want at this point in their lives that, uh, you know, they don't need this. So, you know, I, I think that they're probably talking to people and doing some homework and research. And, um, I'm a little surprised, quite frankly, to be perfectly honest with you. I don't, I wish I had a better answer for you. Uh, I don't, but, um, all right. But, you know, it, clearly there's something that is holding them back. But at the same time, if they're supposed to be coming in sort of in this management capacity, you know, every day that goes by in the offseason, this is such a crucial offseason for the Canucks that I, I would think that every day would be a great opportunity to learn about contracts and negotiations and expansion drafts and the entry draft and, you know, just operating your farm team and relocating it. Like there's just so much on the to-do list that every day that goes by to me, is a missed opportunity for these guys to start the learning process of, you know, life as management or middle management at the NHL level. And uh, on that same day, it was reported that the Canucks would make change within the organization, but we all know that Benning and the rest of the management group were brought back. What do you think changed? Uh, I mean, ownership has always seemed to have Jim Benning's back. And I don't know if it's that they don't want to pay, two general managers, if they were to move on from Jim Benning, or if they, you know, they see something there that they like in terms of the direction with the young players, Uh, you know, it's a business. And I know this was a weird year for business because people weren't in the seats and, 
you know, so I, I do think that we saw the spending sort of freeze that seemed to be in place and, and putting Travis through the ringer. Um, you know, they, they just didn't want to spend a lot. And so I, I, I do wonder if there was a large element of that, that if you were to move on from Jim Benning, you'd have to find somebody else to come in and, and do the job. But Jim's still under contract for a couple more years. So uh, the heat's on. I mean, he knows it when he talked about needing to make the playoffs. I, I just I can't imagine that he could go through another year next season, not make the playoffs and survive. So uh, there's a lot of pressure on Jim Benning. And, and I think that's kind of where the comment about being aggressive was born from, because uh, he recognizes he's got to make something happen here. And the draft is going to be coming up within another month. And uh, if you can answer this, uh, who do you think, who do you like the Canucks to take at number nine? Yeah, I mean, I'll say f- right up front, I'm, I'm not a huge draft prospects guy. Like there are so many people that follow it much closer than I do. I Fair. cover the team at the NHL level. So their names to me, I've done some homework. I've done some reading. You know, I, I mean, I, I like the idea of a Kent Johnson, uh, partially because he's a local guy. Uh, I like the fact that he's gone to Michigan because Michigan's such a, a hockey factory. And we're seeing that with the other guys that are at the top of this draft class. Um, you know, Brent Clark is the sort of best right-handed shot. Like that to me is the real area of need is right-handed defense. And, uh, you know, would he be available to the Canucks? You know, probably not. Um, you know, a lot made of Luke Hughes. I don't think he'll be around, especially with Jersey picking the head of the Canucks. So we'll see. Um, you know, I, I want them to keep the pick and, and use it. I don't want them to trade it, but I'm of the mind of best player available. And so, you know, you're at the whim of the teams ahead of you and goalies are always a wild card. If a goalie was to go, I don't expect that a goalie will go in the top 10, but you know, if a goalie goes, then, you know, that probably makes one more option available to the Canucks and we'll see how it plays out. But I do hope after trading their first rounder, in the JT Miller deal that they keep it and use it. Cause I go back to the fact that I, I think the prospect pool is pretty thin. I think they could use a top 10 guy in their stable. And um, um, the, the, the semifinals of the NHL playoffs have been going on. And have you been uh, watching the, the Habs night series and the lightning Islanders? Uh, I've watched some of the Lightning Islanders. I've watched a lot of the Islanders in the playoffs because I love the atmosphere uh, for their home games. And, and you know, that's a, a team that I don't think gets the respect that it deserves. Everybody thinks it's a Barry Trot system, but uh, I think they've got enough offense. So when they've got the puck and, and they're in the off- offensive zone. Um, so, you know, I, I've enjoyed the Islanders run to this point. Uh, I watched a lot of Colorado Vegas because I kind of thought that might be the Stanley Cup final in disguise and full credit to Vegas for battling back after being down to nothing. Uh, you know, I watched Montreal. Yeah, I've watched a fair bit of Montreal through the playoffs and I watched the opener against Vegas. I, I think with Montreal, if they can get the lead on you, you know, they can dictate the way games are played. If they fall behind, they don't have much offense. And I think that's where they run into trouble. And you saw that in game one against Vegas that, uh, you know, they, they fell behind, they got their goal, but you know, they're always playing catch up and, and opening it up for them. That's not ideal in the way that they play and the personnel that they've got. So uh, just something to keep an eye on if they can get ahead of Vegas in games, uh, maybe they can frustrate Las Vegas, but if Vegas gets out in front, uh, I think that's going to be a tough team to catch. And um, outside of covering hockey, what do you do in your spare time? Yeah. <laughs> Um, what do I do in my spare time? Well, the last year I haven't done an awful lot. I don't think uh, many people have, 
a big golfer when I get the opportunity. That's out of my summer pursuit and uh, love to golf and um, haven't done enough of it yet this year. Just some of that's because of the, co- uh, the pandemic also. You know, when I was out of work, I had to spend some time trying to figure my way back into uh, the circle here. So, uh, you know, it's been a different year in that regard. But, you know, I've got two high school age kids. Uh, one's about to graduate. So it's a big month uh, in our household. And, uh, you know, a family guy that uh, just uh, we love to travel as a family. We've done a lot of it uh, in the last bunch of years, not uh, obviously last year again because of COVID, but uh, something that we want to get back to doing. There's so many places in the world to explore. Uh, we've seen lots of them, and uh, hopefully there's uh, more ahead in our future. And my final question for you is one I ask for every guest. They get to pick any song for their intro music. Um, do you have anything in mind? Uh, I'm not a particularly musical guy. Music is not something that uh, I'm passionate about. And, uh, you know, I go, we can kind of come full circle. Like as a kid growing up, I listened to radio, talk radio. All these years later, even when I'm not on the radio, I still uh, listen to a lot of talk radio. I like opinions. Uh, I like people's stories. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I've never heard music. I've heard music. Um, but, you know, I, 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 there's nothing like I, I don't have a favorite band, really. Um, you know, I don't know if that makes me a bit of an oddball. If it does, so be it. But, uh, you know, I, I grew up sort of a product of the 80s and 90s. So you know, I, I fall on the spectrum of kind of 80s and 90s rock, I guess, Van Halen uh, and those types of bands. So if you wanted to find me some Van Halen to play me out, sure. uh, I would be totally OK with that. Sure, sure. And that's that's fair. And um, Jeff, thanks for coming on the show and great talking to you. If you haven't already, follow Jeff on Twitter at Patterson Jeff and uh, check out the Vancast because yeah. it's Listen quality material. And Jeff, thanks once again for coming on the podcast and hope to have you again sometime in the future. All right. Again, thanks for having me on. All right. Cheers. All right. That'll conclude this week's episode. Uh, follow me on Twitter at joshray 91 Follow the podcast at Happy Discussers. Same handles for Instagram. Check us out on Facebook. Search up Happy Discussers Podcast. Check out our merchandise and the rest of the shows on Area 51. And good and constructive feedback is always welcome. So leave a rating, tell your friends about the podcast, and all that. Peace out. Let me ask you something. Would you like to listen to a sports podcast and learn how to turn $1 into a five-figure sum? Ever heard of the word parlay before? Then join me, Malcolm Ert, the host of Point Shot every week. We talk about the news and notes from around the NHL, focusing on the only team we really care about, though, our Vancouver Canucks, as well as my favorite new topic, sports betting. Catch us wherever you find your podcasts.